Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. Uh, today we'll have the pleasure of speaking with Don Moss about his uh, publication, 13 Ways of Looking at a Man, Psychoanalysis and Masculinity, published in um, 2012 by Rutledge. Um, Don Moss is uh, a psychoanalyst um, based here in New York City on the faculty uh, of uh, the IPE and the author of um, another book, Hating in the First Person Plural, Psychoanalytic Essays on Racism, Homophobia, Misogyny, and Terror. He's also the author of over 50 um, psychoanalytic articles in the past 25 years and serves on the editorial boards of uh, JAPA, IJPA, PQ, Psychoanalytic Quarterly, American Imago, Studies in Gender and Sexuality, and he's been in private practice um, for the past 35 years. And um, in this collection, um, he has uh, gathered together um, some previously published um, articles and then reworked them, and he's also added some personal interludes um, within, scattered within the book to begin to address what he sees as really some profound oversights in the field when it comes to thinking about masculinity. So without further ado, let's move on to the interview. Hi, uh, welcome Don Moss uh, to New Books in Psychoanalysis, um, where we'll be discussing with you your uh, new publication, your new book, 13 Ways of Looking at a Man, Psychoanalysis and Masculinity, published by Rutledge. Hello. Hi, thank you. I wanted to begin begin our interview just by asking you to talk to us about... um, this is a collection of essays. Some of them have been worked over, uh, sort of, some of them have been out there in the world, but you've also interspersed within these essays uh, personal uh, reflections and, and vignettes. And I wanted to ask, what prompted you uh, to put this collection together? Well, uh, I would say that a, a general level of dissatisfaction with my sense of what was being said about masculinity in the psychoanalytic literature and by dissatisfaction, I, I mean, it seemed to me that the general premise was something like, there was this time a little while ago when men were, I don't know how to say it, kind of brittle and phallic and two-dimensional and hard and all of that. And psychoanalysis was served as a kind of theoretical, ideological support for all of that, you know, and was kind of kind of almost textual support for all of that. And that that was premised in the past. And then something good happened pertaining to feminism and, and this good set of things kind of swept up heterosexual men in its in its wake mm-hmm. and has uh, turned us heterosexual men into better men. And by better men, it, it means less of all that was brittle and all that, mm-hmm. um, and more rounded, softer, interior, more 
which had sent them in or passive, all the things that we were said to have renounced uh, a century ago were now slowly being said to slowly embrace, and that this is an unambiguous advance. Um, the, the fact, the idea that it's an advance is unambiguous. It's a, it's a fact. Mm. Um, and I, uh, almost every um, point in that uh, sequence seemed to me um, worth contesting. Um, I, I don't speak about any individual man. I, I wouldn't contest any individual man's claim to be in a more advanced state than <laughs> some predecessor. I, I, I'm not, I have nothing to say about that. Right. But, I'm, but I mean, in a general sense, uh, the way the literature, or at least a certain uh, swath of the literature was going, it seemed to me that that was the story, and um, that in some sense, uh, that story was, in fact, um, in, in a way, just a version of the same old masculine story. Mm -hmm. That is, we're getting better. <laughs> you know, we're getting stronger and better and bigger. And Now, the particulars changed, you know, some, um, but the general drift was, aren't we doing well? We're getting better. Um, you know, a, a, a drift that maybe some time ago might have been, well, we're better warriors, or we're better scientists, or we're better Democrats, or we're better freedom lovers, or whatever. Um, but now, in this in this case, we're better men. Mm -hmm. And um, I just don't. I, I I'm not persuaded that that claim is. Um, uh, what's the word? Goes very deep. It seems um, it seems to um, run roughshod over what is a, I think a focus in the book. Um, it seems to run roughshod over the sense of masculinity as something that's uh, it's the impossible quest. So you're describing, I think, a a narrative that sews it up. Like here's the better man without all that's fractured. And I think the book really, even the cover, of course, it's a photograph of a man, um, many different Polaroids and you see it's, he's fractured. Um, is, is, right. that, is that what you're, what you're getting at sort of? Um, yeah, I, I, something like that. I think I, it seems to me that, that, um, like if you read or, you know, the, the classic psychoanalytic literature doesn't actually have um, most of the cases that we read, you know, in our classes. Most of the cases are, uh, those canonical cases are analyses of women. Um, and we don't have a, a lot of record of how analysts were working with and thinking about the men that they were working with and thinking about. Mm -hmm. Um, at least I, I don't think so. But what we do have is we have, um, 
you know, we, we, we have cultural records. We have novels and movies and all of that. And, and when you look at those novels and movies, um, it seems to me what you see are men um, who are doing their best to realize some ideal of how they ought to be. Like if you think of, uh, oh, I don't know, even even silly people like uh, <laughs> Clark Gable mm-hmm. or uh, um, um, Gregory Peck mm-hmm. or Cary Grant or even James Bond, even James Bond, you know, there's this sense, uh, he, he always, I mean, the reason it's a comic, James Bond, is that he realizes masculinity in its purest form. Right. And then we all know that that's a joke. Right. I mean, he's sort of the perfect, he, he could have been on the cover of the book. Right. Because, because in a certain way, that, we understand James Bond's uh, accomplishments, you know, the, the realization of, of masculinity there is impossible. And if we look at all these semi-heroic figures, they're always um, shaking their own heads at themselves. Mm-hmm. And they're fully aware that they, they never quite were able to do what, no matter how much praise they um, elicited. Um, They know that they were never quite able to realize what they might have wanted to realize. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's, it's that, that I, that interests me most, that not, not so much whether an audience can say, can, can say, well, yes, in you, I see the realization of masculinity, but whether the person himself feels that way or, or and I think um, I, I don't think that such a person exists mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I think we, I think the literature makes it seem as though either the person exists or is about to be born <laughs> right keeps it, it keeps us hopeful <laughs> yeah in in that sense but I I, I but I in I think it's a bad, in a way, I think it's a bad, um, um, like, a, like a token to be held in front of all of us, mm-hmm. because it, 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 um, it's a false idea. It's like, uh, it's like a 105-pound beauty that's held in front of all the teenage girls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it screws them up. Well, you know... It's funny, in reading your book, I, um, certain patients came vividly to mind, and uh, I was thinking about one patient of mine who I actually found I was writing about and preparing for this, um, this interview, and I remember him saying once um, something like, talking about James Bond, and he said, but you know, really, in all those movies, they're trying to castrate him. Don't you see it? And... Then he said more, and he described the most recent, which I didn't see the most recent James Bond movie. He said he's in a wheelchair, and his balls have been attacked or something. He said, and he's always sliding down a staircase that that lands on a knife. They're trying to cut his balls off. <laughs> he just, and he he was sort of delighted in that because there was some some relief, 
You know what I mean? That that here's here's this man who um, is this sort of ideal of masculinity, I guess, um, and virility, who um, is also struggling to attain something that is a. Uh, as my patients saw it, even James, even for James Bond, it's elusive. <laughs> so um, right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but but the thing that we all know with James Bond, we might cringe as, as they're going after his balls, but we know they're not going to get him. We just know that. I, you know, um, I didn't see the last film, but I, but my patient was saying that they got his balls in the last film. No, they, no they didn't. They didn't? No, okay. They didn't. No. <laughs> well, we see what we want to see. So, um, right. <laughs> he gave himself the end, the happy ending that he wanted for that for that movie that, right. that gave him right. relief. Um, yes. <laughs> Um, I wanted to ask you what, um, I, okay, I've got to ask you about the billboard. In this book, um, you write about, um, Don writes about passing this huge billboard in, I'm assuming in Manhattan, um, with the Calvin Klein model and all your millions of reactions, um, to this, uh, this image, Love, yeah. hate, envy, scorn, you know, humor. I mean, it goes on and on. I have to ask, is that the billboard at Houston in Lafayette? Yes. <laughs> well, I was tortured by the woman on that billboard. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure yes. you were, too, for your own reasons. Yes. <laughs> but but yes. I was really taken by uh, the complexity of being a man looking at a man um, that that you capture and uh, the um, there's something so very personal um, and almost I thought wow men don't really I'm not used to men describing what they experience when they look at other men um, yeah which you really um, you dive right into that um, I think um, but. Anyway, just I just had to ask is that was that, that billboard. But right. the I wanted to ask about the book's uh title, um, based on the Wallace Stevens poem, I guess, Thirteen Ways of Looking at a Blackbird and perhaps also right. Henry Henry Louis Gates, Thirteen Ways of Looking at a Black Man. Um, yeah, that but I, I didn't know about the Gates book prior to publishing that. I have to confess. Yeah. But it's it's it was interesting. I was like a black Bird, a black man at a man. Oh, um, yeah. Could you just say something about uh, what um, about the title and what you were trying to uh, capture? Um. Um, well, first, I'd like to say a word. I'd like to. I'm glad that you asked about the billboard, um, yeah. and, and I'm glad that you said that you're not used to men speaking about what it's like to look at other men. Right. Um, at least heterosexual men right. don't tend to do that. Um, and I, I think that in not tending to do that, one of the things that happens is that um, it's very easy to imagine that they don't, that they're not really looking. Mm-hmm. That because after all, there's no, there's no, there's no concession mm-hmm. to looking, mm-hmm. and um, I think it's the kind of thing that uh, that uh, the kind of complexity that I think 
I meant to convey in that opening, in that introduction, about what it's like to look at uh, an image like that, um, is the kind of complexity of interior subjective subjectivity that I don't think is well represented in um, much of the current psychoanalytic literature. So I'm I'm just um, uh, elaborating on your initial question about what comes to the writing book. Um, And as for the title, well, it it wasn't such an intelligently made decision. Um, I really like Wallace Stevens. Um, I like the the implication that if there are thirteen, there's also a fourteenth and a fifteenth. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a number that that seems to me even if there there's an implication of thirteen out of an indefinite and very high number of possibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, so it it it. I, it was meant to convey limitlessness mm-hmm. um, by landing on a kind of awkward number like 13. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I said two ways of looking at a man, right. it, it, it would have, it would have uh, claimed a kind of definitive, well, you can look this way or you can look this way, that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, and 13 gives, gives a sense of... Um, of um, no definitive ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and it also was my effort to uh, hook myself in with Wallace Stevens, which, <laughs> which felt good. Which, which why not? <laughs> why not, yes, yes. I just, no I, re- I reread the poem, uh, this morning in preparation for the interview, and I just pulled out the fourth stanza, a man and a woman are one, a man and a yes. woman and a blackbird are one. Yes. Yes. That's, that's heading in the direction of 13, I think. Um. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> that's um, right, it is. Yeah, it's like, and then, um, I'll tell you that in reading um, your reaction to the billboard, I noticed I was uncomfortable. <laughs> I mean, I was like, why am I uncomfortable? What's uncomfortable uh-huh. about this? You know, I was like, uh-huh. is this... Uh, and, and there was just something about, say, about um, the sense of the hunger, you know, the need to look, the need to take a good look, and then the way in which we don't want to see men taking that good look somehow. Uh-huh. It, 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 there was just, there was some kind of dis... I didn't sit at ease in my seat as I read it. And I read it a second time and I had the same, and I said, wow, that's, that's fascinating. What, what is it about men looking at each other about their, you know, the gaze being met, not met between two men. Um, so yeah, so I, I thought it was a great setup. Um, so what do you think it is? That, that I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still thinking about it. I'm also, I'm thinking about a, a case, um, same patient who will often say to me, um, uh, he's a married straight guy and, uh, he will sometimes say to me, maybe I need a male analyst. And I'll say, well, well, why don't you call one? 
You know, like, why doesn't he explore what it is that he's interested in? Um, and it comes up from time to time, and he keeps himself in a vexed relationship um, to wanting something from a man, but getting it from a woman. You know what I mean? Somehow, he'll just stay with me. He's not going to go get it from a man. But he was uh, in a group analysis um, for quite some time, and a man entered the group who's very dashing, kind of phallic, verbal, you know, guy. Uh, and they really took to each other. And they would really look at each other. And they found each other enormously interesting and very attractive. And I thought to myself, in the psychoanalytic group, these two men could take pleasure in looking at each other and taking each other in. You look great today. I love that on you. You know, like there were, and they would say, I, I don't speak this way outside of here, but I'm full of these feelings. And my sense was some kind of an unmet need, something was able to be articulated and actually enacted um, for, uh, for both of these men. But one patient in particular, the one who's talking about James Bond, um, and and that and actually that was really enjoyable to watch. <laughs> so right, oh, that was enjoyable. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was an, that was enjoyable. But the reading about you looking at this man, you know, because those well, maybe those images, right? The Calvin Klein images are so um, well, they're so very sexual. Yeah, usually. you know what I mean. And uh, so maybe it's like looking at a man, a man looking at another man, and his body and his sexuality. In full, these two guys in the group were clothed. <laughs> Less, uh, yeah. I don't know. Well, I, I was, I was not. Um, well, once I started writing the book, I, I didn't, I didn't feel uncomfortable. But mm. when I first started, um, there are many moments in the book in which I, um, I don't know what the word is, not exactly reveal, but. Um, well, it is revealing, but that's not the problem. But mm-hmm. uh, in in which um, I speak in ways that are meant to simultaneously communicate something directly, but also to um, to represent something indirectly. I mean, the reason I can speak in the first person singular voice in that book is that, it might, not the reason, but my implicit claim is that I am not alone. Mm-hmm. That, that even though this is a very private first person voice in which certain sections of the book are, are written, um, there, there's a, there's a, I don't know what the word is. There's a, there's a kind of premise mm-hmm. um, that that this is not really um, uh, the, the kind of thing that other other men, more or less like myself, will honestly be able to say. I don't know what he's talking about. Right. Um, that that. They, my hunch is they will know what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. and and in that sense, there's a kind of um, group of us, to use your association. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of group of us that I'm imagining myself being 
a member of, and it allows me to speak, sort of for the group. Right. Um, e- even though nobody has actually uh, authorized. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that voice, that voice carries uh, very much so um, throughout the book. And I was thinking it's a really interesting um, foray into psychoanalytic writing. Um, it's a very interesting one. It was, it was an interesting foray into psychoanalytic writing. I was thinking uh-huh. that because we have on the one hand, um, you know, chapters of uh, great intellectual heft, you know, and then we have chapters of sort of self-revealing. Uh, I thought it was fascinating. And I wanted to ask you, um, um, can you say something to us about your thoughts about the, about the form of this text? Because um, it is really, it's, it's very hybrid. It's very 13. You know? right. it, it goes yeah. in many directions. Well, I, I have some favorite authors, and it must be let's say, well, not all men, but the authors I most favor are people in whose writing you get a sense of terrific exposure on their parts, on the author's parts. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know, you know, let's say, well, you know, Virginia Woolf or, um, Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, it doesn't matter, Henry James, uh, James Joyce. That is, you, you have a sense of people writing very much out on a limb. And um, at least to me, the, the, um, in a, it, it puts them in the position of a kind of leader. And as I think of leaders as being out on limbs. Um, and I, I feel that unless an author is, unless you can sort of identify that they're going out on a limb. I mean, that's to me, that's where the authorial voice mm-hmm. becomes worth reading. Right. Because if it's not on a limb, you might as well have read someone else <laughs> with whom the author is affiliated. Mm-hmm. That is, it's, it's only once he gets out on the limb that it starts to be compelling or or valuable, I think. And so some of the, I, I think the first person voice throughout that book is an effort to, I mean, I, I wasn't thinking of it this way in advance, but in, in um, retrospect, it's an effort to, um, I don't know what the word is, to make myself credible. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, so that if somebody says, says who, I, you know, I would say, I could, I would able, I would be able to say, well, says me. Uh, I, I, that it doesn't rest upon my thoughts about another man. Right. And, and it, it's more like, I, I see in other men um, versions of what I see in myself, and my claim to see them these things in other men depends upon whether you believe I see them in myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because I and that that's part of what I think troubles me about a lot of the current literature on masculinity. You you have a sense of authors who whose claim is I see all these things in men other than myself. <laughs> right over there. Um, yeah, they're getting better or they're not getting better or this one's too phallic or this one's insufficiently feminine or whatever they see over there. You don't you don't get I don't think you get a, a sufficient enough sense of what why should we believe you? Mm-hmm. Who, who who are you to tell us this? What 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 makes your voice credible? Not that they're lying. That's not what, maybe credible is the wrong word. Um, but what makes what makes you? Well, who are you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really what I'm concerned about. Who are you when you're writing? Well, you're very and, much. You're really not standing. I mean, in this book, you're not standing outside of it. Um, you're very much standing uh, in the middle of it. And uh, one of the places where you're most powerfully, I think, in the middle of it is where you're talking. Um, uh, in the chapter on, um, I forget the title of the chapter, Psychoanalysis and Homosexuality, and you're going back over um, the Kenneth Lewis book, and uh, yes. and you ask um, something that seems so important. You're taking up a discussion about um, sensuousness and neutrality in the clinical Oh, yeah. Yeah, very personal, and I think I, I, you kind of you know slap the hand of uh, of analysts who are patting themselves on the back and saying, you know, hey, it's all good now. You know, right. gay is gay is good. It used to be really bad, and now suddenly right. it's good. And you put yourself right in the middle of it, like, okay, you, I think you call it a flight. In, is this a flight into health um, with the profession and its uh, its our attitude um, toward homosexuality? Um, and you you insinuate in the best way you know yourself right in that moment in the clinical encounter where you're asking yourself is is neutrality possible what of my actual lived feeling in the room listening to um a you know gay man talking to me about right. his feelings about yeah. me about his father about his lover um i i thought and i thought by when I, when i got to that chapter you really did have credibility in that sense because uh-huh. oh. you had show you had shown yourself you know in in a certain yes. way yeah and uh it's, it's interesting i mean one of the things that i that i feel is sort of lurking in the book I, i'm glad you bring that that essay that part of the book up um I think that we, over the years, I mean, maybe not these days, but for a long time, there was a kind of conflation of the idea of anonymity and neutrality, mm-hmm. and that the, the neutral analyst was a was an anonymous analyst, and neutrality depended on anonymity, and the moment one, um, be, whatever the opposite of anonymous is, n- Nominous, I, I don't know. <laughs> Whatever, whenever one uh, broke from a- anonymity, one was by definition breaking from neutrality. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it seems to me that that maybe that's part of a larger idea 
that the book is meant to exemplify that that I think that um, neutrality demands um, identification mm-hmm. not not in the uh, not in the I identify with you sense but um, sh- sort of showing your ID mm-hmm. um, it's only when you've shown your ID that you can then stake a claim to be neutral. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know if they, I, I don't know if that's the same as, what I, what I mean is, if you're, if you're a man like me and your patient is gay and he's talking about something about being a gay man and you, you, you feel uneasy or you're uncertain whether the thing you're hearing represents a flight from men or a flight toward women. I mean, a, an attraction toward men or a flight from women, and you, you can't, you have nothing to rely on. You can't, you can't tell. Mm-hmm. There's theory that will support either side, and there's feeling that will support either side. Um, it seems to me that in order for you to make a claim that you think whatever you think, is going to depend upon your really showing up in your own mind. This is where I am. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's the showing up that allows for some kind of clarity, not the staying away. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't know. That well, makes sense. Yeah, what would, and the sta- what would staying away look like? I think that could... Uh, staying away would look like um, what occurs to you uh, when you say, um, gee, that woman is very interesting, but I better stay with Jim. Mm-hmm. So that what occurs to you would mean putting all the demand on the other person. Right. You're asking the other person to show up. Mm-hmm. Come on, show up and clarify this situation for me. Right. That would be not showing up. Right. Right. Um, and I don't mean by showing up uh, saying, well, look, what I think is, um, you know, your homosexuality is a flight from heterosexuality. I don't mean that as an example of showing up. <laughs> that's a, that's called a showdown. <laughs> that's called a showdown. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. Showing, I, but showing up is a hard thing to do. And it's a hard thing to conceptualize. Um, Owen Rennick has this thing, uh, I forget, playing your cards face up or something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't mean that either because right. I don't mean self-disclosure. Yeah. Um, that's not what I mean by showing up. Yeah. Um, but I mean um, being enough of a person that the patient has a clear sense of essentially who he's in the room with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you have a responsibility to provide that. Mm-hmm. And I think we have been taught over the years that we have a responsibility to not provide that. Right. Right. I think that that, that uh, will resonate with many, uh, many listeners. I think that that's a, a real refrain from many of the interviews I've done. I mean, that, 
that always comes up because you're saying that neutrality is different from anonymity right there. It's a, um, right. And I think neutrality is a wonderful value. I don't mean, mm-hmm. I think anonymity is less wonderful. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And the work of finding neutrality, um, you, I really see yeah, in, in that chapter, um, you really see you working to like, what does it take to find neutrality when I'm pulled in this direction or that, where I have yeah. a, a lived experience that doesn't shed any light on what I'm hearing? How do I find neutrality? And, and that, that, that is what we owe um, our patients. I mean, right. a very, yeah, I think that's... very much so. Um, I wanted to ask you, this is a little bit different uh, topic, but um, I, uh, I wrote, um, you know, as I'm reading, I'm always jotting down notes, and I was like, why, why is it so easy to find men, dis- men disappointing? And I was reminded of seeing in an analytic class on psychoanalysis and gender, and a man in the class says, what is it about masculinity that's so uh, disappointing? And then you have this really great quote um, that I think is very relieving in a certain sense. Um, In the book, you you write, no matter where you land or who you love, no matter what you renounce or what you take in, you will always, always be susceptible to the judgment that you did it wrong. And I, I see this as one of those, as an example of you saying something to men that you're like, right, guys, isn't this how it is? Um, you know, but, but I really wonder what is, what is it about masculinity that there's always this sense that it's a, that women are disappointed. You know, our practices are full of women with the man didn't, he didn't do this. He didn't do that. Um, do you have thoughts about, I'm sure you do, uh, about this sort of disappointment factor? As you're talking, I, I was thinking about animals, wolves and, um, Apes, um, animals that are sort of pack animals, yeah. In which um, there are hierarchies, male hierarchies, yeah. And um, I believe that I'm pretty sure that animals do not feel disappointed. Mm-hmm. That is, I that is that the alpha group, either if it's one or more. Um, does not disappoint. Mm -hmm. That is an alpha lion, that's it. Right. It's not like trying to be alpha. Mm -hmm. An alpha lion succeeds at being an alpha lion. So an alpha man, though, I don't think ever succeeds. And I think, I don't don't know whether this is true, but I, I think that in some way, we're trying to replicate something that if we didn't have minds and if we didn't have self-reflection, I don't think we would be disappointed in who we are. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think, though, that the moment we have the capacity to reflect on who we are, then we're always in the presence of aspiration. I mean, always. 
It's not a very radical thing to say masculinity is always disappointing. Uh, one could say the same thing about writing a, a, a text. Um, it, it's not satisfying. Not really. It's almost satisfying. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, and, and it doesn't matter whether somebody says it's good. Mm-hmm. There's a sense that you almost got it. Right. It's almost good. And I, I think this is true of an enormous uh, range of human experience. Mm-hmm. That that, and it has to do with our all uh, with our um, inclination to aspire to be something other than we currently are. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's a feature of animal mental life. You don't ever get a sense that a dog is disappointed in his day. <laughs> you know, it doesn't happen. Um, <laughs> this It reminds me of Adam Phillips' uh, uh, new book in which he's sort of talking about something along these lines, like, oh, you know, the life the li- the life you aspire to yes. live and the life you're actually living <laughs> yes <laughs> and yeah. the disconnect yeah. or the the chasm between um, yeah mm-hmm. um, so i i mean i think i haven't read that book but i read some excerpt from it i think and i think he he's a little bit more sanguine about the gap you know he kind of <laughs> says you know essentially forget it you know just relax right <laughs> and, and and i'm not I don't feel that way, and therefore I wouldn't be saying that. I, I think, no, keep the aspiration going and don't relax. Right. And in fact... Don't give up on your desire. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And with, with the full awareness that it's going to include a kind of depressive, disappointed dimension. The bitter that, experience that you uh, quote, yeah. quote Freud. Yeah. Um, so. Yes. Yes. So movingly. I think so. Yeah. I, I, wanted to, I want to talk to you about your, uh, the chapter um, about the nearly psychotic, nearly perverse, nearly uh, yeah. neurotic um, man. I, I thought that chapter was incredible on neither being nor becoming a man. And um, when I finished the book, you know, you have uh, this epilogue in which um, – now, that actually brought me to tears. This epilogue is so, so on the money about your, your young little boy. You're asked to have a secret song that you lead the class in. Your secret song is really a song that helps you to sleep at night. That's a, a, a childhood lullaby. And you stand before the room and all the boys look at you and you know you can't reveal this. And you, um, what, what do you do? The battle hymn of the... The Marine hymn, the Marine hymn yeah. from the halls of Montezuma. And, and you describe, you know, your father being, um, you know, orienting you toward limits, reality. This yeah. is all there is. Yeah. Um, and then I was thinking, wow, you get the, you know, here you have these guys in your practice um, who refuse to... Um, except uh, bitter experience. They'd rather not choose um, so as to, I, I don't know, I, I just, I found it really interesting that these are, the, that these are some people you have in your practice and you reveal at the end, this was the 
childhood experience of a father who oriented you toward um, the limit. Yeah. Um, can you, I don't know if anything comes to mind to, to say more about, about this chapter. It's really a clinical, uh, you know, it's, it's a tour de force. I, 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 actually the thought I had is, you know, I have a, a female, a couple of female patients who, um, are very much so this way. And I think I just think of them as sort of hysterics, but, um, Right. If, a, if a woman walks into your office and doesn't want to make a choice and doesn't want to say yes or no um, and can't and can't tolerate separation and wants a twenty four hour experience, yes, is it? Do you think it's a it's different this sort of nearly psychotic state in a woman than in a man? Well, I feel as though I have three such people in my practice: the one I wrote about and two others. Mm-hmm. And the other two are women, so mm-hmm. yeah. um, I feel as though it's, there's a similar possibility, mm-hmm. regardless of gender. Um, I, I know that this cluster of three people, maybe I've had a couple others who I would also put in the same cluster, I know that they they really bother me. Mm-hmm. Um there's something, and they 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 induce a kind of a, a, a real a, a sort of violent reaction in me. <laughs> yes. I I want to hurt them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want it's almost it's like I want to make them suffer enough that they'll get off center. Mm-hmm. I want to make the zero place that they want to go to intolerable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't do it. I mean, it's, I haven't tried so hard, but I, I, I don't think it's possible to do. Well, you would, you would, you would have to, um, wear yourself out and be willing to reduce yourself to, um, a zero sum. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so yeah. you're, you're just yeah. too much on the side of life. So <laughs> yeah, I, well, I think in fact you would have to kill them. Yeah, right. And then, of I, course, really, you'd, I, and then you'd end up in jail. You see, that's it's just, that's right. It's, you'd end up in living the life that they're living. That's right. So you'd find you'd finally fully accept their experience and <laughs> live it for them and relieve them of it. Oh, yes, yep. exactly. Uh huh. Yep. Um, <laughs> what about? Um, there's there seems to be like this idea about masculinity and psychoanalysis. You know the. I wrote it, I was like, is this a screen memory or is it true? And I think it's true. I remember reading Nancy Chattero, uh, Reproduction of Mothering, when I was 18, a long time ago now, and um, coming into contact with the idea that little boys and little girls are both, uh, you know, identifying with the mother's ego or in a feminine position and the struggle for the boy um, to become a man. And certainly a theme in this book is... uh, to do with masculinity and instability, unpredictability, volatility. Um, you write, uh, it's a quote, learn to encounter a man one day and whatever you might have learned in that experience will have so little bearing on your next encounter with either that man or any other that in the second encounter you will likely not even be able to speak of having learned a thing. Um, I was wondering, can you comment on kind of the that dominant paradigm of like, you know, I think it's Stoller, Greenson, you know, also, um, how, how a boy becomes a man. And, 
what do you think about that? And um, is that what underpins this sort of uh, instability? Oh, I see. Um, because you write about you know masculinity as masquerade, you know, you, you borrow from Joan uh, Rivière. Um, you know that to be a man, that one can never a man never knows. You don't write this, but I was thinking to paraphrase: a man never knows he's a man, right? How does a man ever know he's a, he's a, actually attained manhood? Um, is masculinity right. possible? You know, right. actually, can I quote you some more? I have a nice quote of yours here that might be helpful. Sure. Um, you write: masculinity on its face lacks the capacity to legitimate itself. It always needs affirmation, and there, in that need, lies its delegitimating weak point, its confession to be less than, other than it it aspires to. No matter how complete, masculinity suspects itself of pretending. Right. That really... Sounds very good. Yeah, sounds good, right? Good. <laughs> it's very, it's very well written. Who wrote it? Okay, good job. <laughs> um, Pretending. Well, it's funny, you know that 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 that's. Uh, I don't know if that's just me, but it seems to me that's sort of what it's like to feel like a man. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, you you. You do something, like in this case, write, write a few sentences, and someone reads them back, and you say, oh, that looks like a man. Oh, that was me. It, you know, it, it, it has a, a bit of an indirect uh-huh. character to it, I think, um, the attainment of masculinity. It's not as though you're... I don't mean to say you're forever at the whims of the next observer. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that there's a kind of um, a repeated, maybe that your subjectivity is a little lagging behind your actions. Am I and, there yet? Or, or, Am I there yet? Yeah, yeah or, or, or even yeah, lagging behind. Am I there yet? No. More like, uh, oh, was that it? Mm-hmm. Like that. Mm-hmm. Was that it? Was that it? Oh, that was it. <laughs> oh, that was it. Oh, I get it. That was, yeah, that was it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I actually, oh, yeah. That, that, like that. Like, what, maybe that's not lagging behind. I don't know what that is. Um, where yeah. there's a sense of, it, it happens with, um, I think, not, again, not just masculinity. If If you ask somebody, How's your work going as a psychoanalyst? I think most people have the feeling most of the time with most patients in most sessions that they didn't do very well. <laughs> it's that bad analyst feeling, yep. <laughs> yeah, uh, it may be even not bad, but not very well, frankly. Yeah, yeah. And then, but somehow if you start talking about what you did in the session you can easily sound like you did fairly well. Uh (laughs) And then someone will say, oh, that sounds pretty good. (laughs) And then you have this little moment of confusion. Like, oh, yeah, I guess it does. That was me. (laughs) And and it seems to me that something like that is always at work. Mm -hmm. That is, you're, you're sort of a... 
you have this feeling, oh, I did, I, not terribly, but that, it wasn't quite, it wasn't very good. Mm-hmm. And then you tell somebody, and they say, oh, that was pretty good. Mm-hmm. And then both are true. Right. And you're working that zone as a psychoanalyst. Yeah. And I think it's the same, uh, the same kind of structure um, operates with masculinity. Right. Right. I think you you write very well about um, the complication, um, the complicated role that identification plays uh, in the. I don't know, attainment of masculinity, that it, it kind of doubles back on itself. Um, I think your argument is really, uh, really apt in that, uh, as I understand it, you're saying that in order to become a man, one must make an identification with a man. Of course, identification can also involve incorporation, receptivity, some sort of a more typically deemed feminine activity. Um, and that's at the heart of uh, of becoming a man. And when and it's funny when I think of femininity, I think I don't. Do I have to attain it? Can I take a break from it? You know, can I right. get out? Of, I can never get out of it. You know, it's just oh yeah, there it is. But the I mean, can can you describe for for the listeners your your thoughts about? Um, I thought it was quite unique what you wrote about identification and its feminizing aspect um, and its uh, importance to masculinity. Well, my son, who's 18, is currently working on a farm uh, owned by this, these friends of ours. And the guy, he's in his 70s. I know him fairly well. And I would say he, of all the men I've ever met, he's the one I would most like to be. Mm. He, in my view, he's the best there is. And my son is up there. And my son is having a great time and is having especially a great time with this guy. And I'm thinking to myself, and I'm very happy that my son can be around this guy and learn all sorts of things and be with this great man. And I'm feeling many things about that. I'm feeling like, oh, I wish I could be a man like that. And the moment I start feeling that, I start feeling less than a man like that, which isn't nice. And then I start feeling, oh, no, actually, I am a man like that also. Um, And my son going there is a sign that I'm fine with that because I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I expose my son to somebody who's going to make me feel bad in mm-hmm. comparison. So I'm okay. Mm-hmm. And then, but there is this guy, and I know that in somewhere in my mind, he is better than me. And I also know that that's, that, that is, it's true that that, that that is on my mind. It's also true that it's not true. Mm-hmm. And in there lies the problem in a sense, that I think you're talking about. Yep. That is, how do I like this guy as I do without feeling less masculine than him? Mm-hmm. Because after all, it seems to me he's more of a man than I am. Mm-hmm. Right. But at this, so in, and so I'd like to be more like him. Mm-hmm. But the moment I'd like to be more like him, 
I'm less like him. <laughs> yeah. And, and somewhere in there lies the, is the conundrum mm-hmm. that I think you're speaking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, men need men, but if a man needs a man to be a man, then... Then he's... he's He's the fuck, as they say. Yeah, it just, it just keeps going. And it, uh, I mean, the book made me very, you know, I mean, I'm pretty sympathetic uh, to men, but it, it heightened my, uh, my sensitivity to some of the, um, the, the more hidden uh, conundrums. I mean, because patients aren't always, uh, you know, speaking actually uh, to this. It's like there's a lot of shame involved, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think so. And, yeah. um, you know, I'm always working to reduce shame, um, you know, in all my patients, but in my male patients in a, in a certain way, you know, can they want what they want and describe what they want and, and fantasize and, and say whatever comes to their mind and leave the session um, feeling like men? It's, it's, yes, it's, right. it's complicated to send them out in, into the, onto the street, you know, um, that that transition, I think we have to stop um, because we're um, okay. we're sort of out of time, as it were. That's you know, the time frame for the show okay. is around fifty minutes or so. Um, okay, um, it's been terrific to to talk to you. I was hoping, actually, when I st- when I can't figure out the technology to do this, but I was going to have background music for us. So I'll just tell you this: oh. I was going to have. I don't know if you know this song um, by Joe Jackson. Um, it's called Real Men. It's probably from like the mid to late 80s. Terrific. He's a British, um, I think he's British, um, and kind of post-new wave. And he has this song, uh, Real Men. And the lyrics, if I could sing, I would, I would sing it. Um, he says, take your mind back, I don't know when, sometime when it always seemed to be just us and them. Girls that wore pink and boys that wore blue. Boys that always grew up better men than me and you. What's a man now? What's a man mean? Is he rough or is he rugged? Is he cultural and clean? Now it's all change. It's got to change more because we think it's getting better. But nobody's really sure. Now, the song goes on, but I think since we began with this idea of it's getting better, and your argument right. is, but nobody's really yeah. sure, you're, and you're, yeah. you're, you know, Speaking directly to that, I think um, we'll end with that, and yeah. I'll be happy to send you a copy of the lyrics. <laughs> so um, we want to thank the listeners for tuning in um, to our conversation uh, today with Don Moss on 13 Ways of Looking at a Man. Uh, Don, thank you so much for, um, for spending time with us. And, uh, thank you, Chef. We welcome you back at any time, so keep writing. Okay, okay thank you. All right.